Our scripture today will be all of Joshua chapter 9. If you want to turn there. All right, Joshua chapter 9. This is the word of God. As soon as all the kings who were beyond the Jordan in the hill country and, the, and in the lowland, all along the coast of the great sea toward Lebanon, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, they heard of this. They gathered together as, to, as one to fight against Joshua and Israel. But when the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and to Ai, they on their part acted with cunning and went and made ready provisions and took worn out sacks for their donkeys and wineskins, worn out and torn and mended, with worn out patched sandals on their feet and worn out clothes. And all their provisions were dry and crumbly. They went to Joshua in the camp at Gilgal and said to him and to the men of Israel, we have come from a distant country, so now make a covenant with us. But the men of Israel said to the Hivites, perhaps you live among us. Then how can we make a covenant with you? They said to Joshua, we are your servants. And Joshua said to them, who are you and where do you come from? And they said to him, from a very distant country, your servants have come because of the name of the Lord, your God. For we have heard a report of him and all that he did in Egypt and all that he did to the two kings, of the Amorites, who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon, the king of Heshbon, and to Og, king of Bashan, who lived in Ashtaroth. So our elders and all the inhabitants of our country said to us, take provisions in your hand for the journey and go meet with them and say to them, we are your servants. Come now, make a covenant with us. Here is our bread. It was still warm when we took it from our houses as food for the journey on the day we set out to come meet you. But now behold, it is dry and crumbly. These wineskins were new when, they, when we filled them, and behold, they have burst. And these garments and sandals of ours are worn out from their very long journey. So the men took some of their provisions, but did not ask for the counsel of the Lord. And Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them to let them live. And the leaders of the congregation swore to them, at the end of three days, after they had made a covenant with them, they heard that they were their neighbors and that they lived among them. And the people of Israel set out and reached their cities on the third day. Now their cities were Gibeon, Chippereth, Beeroth, and Kiriath-Jerim. But the people of Israel did not attack them because the leaders of the congregation had sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel. Then all the congregation murmured against the leaders. But all the leaders said to the, all the congregation, we have sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel, and now we may not touch them. This we will do to them. Let them live, lest wrath be upon us because of the oath that we swore to them. And the leader said to them, let them live. So, that, so they became cutters of wood and drawers of water for all the congregation, just as the leaders had said to them. Joshua summoned them and said to them, why did you deceive us, saying, we are very far from you when you dwell among us? Now, therefore, you are cursed. Some of you shall never be anything but servants, cutters of wood, and drawers of water for the house of my God. They answered Joshua, Because it was told to your servants for a certainty that the Lord your God had commanded his servant Moses to give you all the land and to destroy all the inhabitants of the land from before you. So we feared greatly for our lives because of you and did this thing. And now behold, we are in your hand. Whatever seems good and right in your sight to do to us, do it. So he did this to them and delivered them out of the hand of the people of Israel, and they did not kill them. But Joshua made them that day cutters of wood and drawers of water for the congregation and for the altar of the Lord to this day 
in the place that he would choose. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. All right. Thanks, Johnny. And thanks, Colton. Um, so uh, for you guys that have uh, read the Lord of the Ring books or, or watched the movies, I, I feel like I need to confess. I feel like every pastor should have read Lord of the Rings, and I have not. I've tried to I've watch the movies. I've tried to read through it. I've gotten about 50 pages in. And y'all might be like me. I usually have a handful of books I'm reading, and just the books kind of pile up and end up overshadowing that. Anyway, that's not the point. Not in my notes. Wish I wouldn't have said it. Anyway, there's a moment uh, at the end of the movie or the book, uh, and, uh, and, and Frodo's leaving. He realizes the ring's too powerful. He's going to have to go it alone to, to Mordor to, to destroy the ring. And so anyway, he's in his boat, and he's, and he's paddling off, and, and, then, uh, and then here comes, so, so yes, Frodo, uh, who's, who's taking off. And then Sam's, Samwise Gamgee's coming after him, calling after him, trying to, trying to catch him because uh, he doesn't want him to go alone. And so Frodo calls him off. He says, hey, stay back. I'm going alone. And Sam just continues to come, come after him. Then he's getting in the water. He, he's making his way to him. Uh, and, and Frodo says, no, you can't swim. <laughs> you know, stay back. But he doesn't stop. And then, you know, he's, he's sinking down in the water. He's, he's going to drown. Frodo turns around, picks him up, uh, brings him onto the, to the boat. Uh, and, and Sam says that, you know, he, he's not going to leave. And he says this. He says, I made a promise, Mr. Frodo, a promise. Don't you leave him, Samwise Gamgee. And I don't mean to. I don't mean to. So, so Sam had, had promised Gandalf that he would not uh, leave Frodo alone. And for Sam, that was binding. He, he, he would not let Frodo go alone. And, and for some people, when they say they'll do something, it's a really big deal. And, and they'll seem to go to unreasonable lengths to keep their, their, their promise. And for others, not so much. Uh, but for Christians, we see in our text today and throughout the Bible is that when we say we'll do something, when we make a promise, it is a really big deal. And for Christians to keep their word, it shouldn't be a, a small thing to them that we're trying to find ways to, to weasel out of. It's a really big deal. And I think in Joshua chapter 9, uh, there's a couple things for us to consider kind of in this, in this um, idea of keeping our word. And so what I want to do is I want to consider two things. Uh, first, I want to consider what Joshua did well. Uh, and then secondly, I want to consider what Joshua did poorly. So first, what Joshua did well. Well, you know, let me give a kind of a recap of, of what we just read in Joshua 9. Uh, Gibeon was this uh, city in Canaan. And, uh, and as you all know by now that Joshua and Israel, they were supposed to take out uh, the people in the land of Canaan. And that included the Gibeonites. Uh, but the Gibeonites heard about Joshua and Israel, and they knew that, well, you know, these people are taking folks out. It doesn't matter what, if they're a, a bigger city or, or anything, they are going to take everybody out. The Lord is with them. And so they knew that they were in trouble. So uh, they decided that they were going to pretend to be from a far country that, as if they were not from the land of Canaan. So they went so far as to uh, make their clothes worn out, uh, take their food, make the food look old, dry, and crumbly, <clears throat> and it worked. So, so, um, so believing, so Joshua and Israel believing that they were not from Canaan and therefore they were not obligated to, to take them out, Joshua made a covenant of peace with them. But after a few days, they found out that the Gibeonites were in fact from Canaan, that they'd been deceived. Uh, and that they were a part of the people that Joshua was, was supposed to take out. But Joshua and Israel still 
kept their promise anyway. Now, most of us will read this text and, and, and will immediately think, hey, this contract is void. I mean, this was, this was, they were straight up lying when the deal was made. And so therefore, it is completely reasonable and fair that this contract would be void. And the only reason they made this covenant of peace with them is because they thought they weren't of this land. Otherwise, they wouldn't have made the deal with them. But the promise was made, and it's remarkable that the promise was kept. I think it's supposed to get our attention. And, 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 and they, were, they were right to keep this promise, because in some ways, you, you could read this and be like, you know what, I, think, I don't think God would mind. I mean, I think God would understand. Like, he told them to take the people out. These people said we're not of the land. And so the covenant of peace was made uh, under, under, you know, bad terms, and it wasn't truth. They thought they were making a covenant with somebody else, not the people that lived in the land. But we know for sure that God wanted them to keep this promise because of what happened hundreds of years later. You don't have to turn there, but in 2 Samuel uh, chapter 21, uh, there is a uh, famine, a three-year famine in Israel. People are dying. And so after three years, uh, David seeks the Lord, and he gets an answer as to why this famine has happened. And read this in 2 Samuel 21. There was a famine in the days of David for three years, year after year. And David sought the face of the Lord, and the Lord said, There is blood guilt on Saul, he's the former king, and on his house because he put the Gibeonites to death. I mean, it just gets crazier and crazier at this thing, right? I mean, it seems like they shouldn't even have to make the promise, but it's one of those things where even hundreds of years later, when, when the, the previous king, King Saul, put the Gibeonites to death, that God is, is dealing with his people. And we see in chapter 9, verse 20, that one of the reasons they wanted to keep this promise they made to the Gibeonites was so that God's wrath wouldn't be upon them. So, so this story is odd to us because it, it, it's a contrast with the world we live in, where, where contracts and agreements can be easily void. And certainly, if there was some kind of an agreement and there was blatant lying happening, that it would just be void, right? Like, like if you bought a car online uh, and then you show up to, uh, to, to get the car that you bought and it's a different car, well, hey, obviously this isn't, this isn't for you, right? The, the contract is void. This is not what I bought. And so when you read this passage, you almost want to jump into the story and say, hey, guys, Joshua, yeah, you don't have to keep, you, you don't have to keep this covenant. Don't worry. I'm from the year 2022. This is void. You're in good shape. But the, the whole idea here is that this covenant is not void and that he needs to keep his, the, the promise anyway. Our God in Joshua chapter 9 is making a point and that when a promise is made, a promise is to be kept. And in 2 Samuel 21, our God is making a point with King Saul when he, there was blood guilt on him for killing the Gibeonites. There are still consequences for breaking that promise. Because keeping a promise is a really big deal to our God. Our God is a covenant-keeping God, and the whole Bible can even be summarized around the idea of a promise. The Old Testament is a promise made, and the New Testament is a promise kept. And, you know, I don't know if some of y'all were like me when you were growing up, you know, because sometimes, you know, you're a kid, you're telling each other stories, and, uh, and usually they're unbelievable, and maybe they are, maybe you're lying, I don't know. 
but, but sometimes the, the conversation might go something like this. So let's just say it's me. And I say something kind of bizarre. And they say, no way. And I say, no, I swear. I'm like, oh, okay. Well, maybe, maybe he's serious. And then I could up it to a, another level with a phrase that I'm the most uncomfortable saying because to me it was the same level as a bad word. I'd say, no, I swear to God. Now, if you did that, you, you must be honest if you're saying that because I don't even know, like, like I, I was even afraid to say that. I, that was like against the rules, but that was like upping it. But, but th- this is, it's not just something that idiot kids did in Jackson, Mississippi in, in the 90s, right? In the 80s and 90s. Like, it, it's, this has been going on for years. And it's even interesting. Jesus mentioned this in the Sermon on the Mount. So it, in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says this, Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is the footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. And so the, the religious folks in Jesus' day were, were kind of like me and my crew back when I was a, a kid, where you didn't just say something because, you know, what you mean doesn't carry any weight. You have to swear, or maybe even if you're for real, Swear to God, because that then you know you're you're saying something that's true. But Jesus was saying like, no, no, this is ridiculous. You, you don't need to, to swear by uh, Jerusalem or swear by the heaven or the throne of God or any of that stuff. Just let your yes be yes and your no be no. And, and that was a category I almost didn't have. It's just that the idea that my word was binding and breaking a promise is a really big deal. And so, so we should give fault to this idea. And I, I doubt many of us are, you know, hardcore lying all the time. We're probably somewhat aware of it. And I bet usually when we lie, it's an accident or maybe something happened that kind of put us in a spot where we felt uh, tempted or, or persuaded to that. And we should give some fault to some people that we might be vulnerable to lying to. Like if we were, you know, in, in court and we kind of have, you know, we're going to tell the, the truth because it's perjury. It's just like, well, for Christians, it's no different when we're talking to our kids. Like we just need to tell the truth. And I think one way for a lot of us that are going to be vulnerable to this sin of not keeping our word is our kids. I mean, what are they going to do? <laughs> they lie to us. They can take away our money, put us in our room. There's no, there, there, there's no fine for lying to your kids. You can just kind of move on about your day. And sometimes we might break a promise to our kids and they say, but you said, and that is a great instinct Because what that means, and that's part of just the way that God made them, the moral law that we're all born with and instinctively know is that when someone says they'll do something, they should do what they said they would do. When someone makes a promise, they should keep it even when it hurts and when it's not convenient. In in Psalm 15, the psalmist asks the question, who shall dwell on God's holy hill? And here's the answer. O Lord, who shall dwell in your tent and who shall dwell in your holy hill? He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks the truth in his heart, who does not slander with his tongue or does no evil to his neighbor, nor take up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own hurt and does not change. 
He swears to his own hurt and does not change. I think our kids need to see that in us, that we make a promise and we do what we'll say we're going to do even when it's inconvenient. And it starts with parents keeping our word. And, and with that in mind, we need to be careful about what we promise because so much is out of our control and we don't need to make promises that we can't keep. So consider James chapter 4, verse 13. Come now, you who say today or tomorrow, we'll go into such a, such a town and spend a year there, trade, make a profit. Yet you do not even know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. So there's much that is out of our control, and we're making a promise. We need to keep that in mind. Now, in, in, in light of that, I, I want to mention something that some of you might have experienced, especially those who have been involved in Christian groups, organizations, or conferences, and all that. And what I'm going to say is it's not a terrible thing. I just don't like it, and I think you should give some discernment to it. So one thing that was, that was happening when I was in college and involved with the, with the campus ministry, and I heard this happen with other groups, is that sometimes they would uh, challenge the students at a conference, at a meeting, or something to sign a pledge. And the pledge often has something to do with maybe being an, an overseas missionary. And so what they would do, they would have this conference, they would have uh, teaching, good, rich, biblical teaching on missions and the gospel going out. And then there'd be a, a challenge for people to consider signing uh, a, a pledge uh, that would, that, where they would give uh, a year of their life to missions. Now, that's hard to critique, right? I mean, who's, who's against missions, right? Here's the thing. It's just that going back to James chapter 4, you don't know what's going to happen tomorrow, much less a year from now. You might be disqualified from being a missionary. You might not have the character to do it. There, there's so many factors that can go into that. And so anyway, I say all that just to beware of making oaths and vows or signing pledges when you don't know what the future holds. Not signing it doesn't mean you're against missions. It just means you don't know what's to come. I think everybody should consider it. That should be an option. Uh, but the idea, you just need to be careful about what you make an oath, a promise, a covenant to do. And keep in mind, you don't know what tomorrow will bring. Now, so we, we shouldn't make promises if we don't know if we can keep them. And we should make promises without seeking God. Because making a promise is a really big deal. And when we do it, we should do it thoughtfully. And that brings me to what Joshua did poorly. So what did Joshua do poorly? In chapter 9, verse 14, we read that he did not ask counsel from the Lord. And it's interesting to, to note here that it wasn't that, that Joshua, uh, Joshua wasn't thoughtful or that he was overly assuming that he was just overly trusting kind of a guy. You know, in, in verse 6, the Gibeonites say they are from a distant country. That is a lie. And Joshua is skeptical. He, he, he does not assume they are telling the truth. In verse 7, he says, perhaps you live among us. How can we make a covenant of peace with you? So he's thinking, you guys could be lying. And so the, the Gibeonites show them their worn out clothes, their, their old food, it's crumbling. They're from, so they're, they're convincing that they're far away. So, so humanly speaking, Joshua has done due diligence. He was skeptical from at the beginning. They showed some evidence, and so he bought into it. But he didn't do the most important thing that he was supposed to do, which is to ask counsel from the Lord. Now, you might hear that and you think, sounds like Joshua didn't pray about it. 
Maybe so, but there was something more specific that Joshua was supposed to do. Now, if you're quick on the draw, you can turn back to Numbers chapter 27. It's just two books to your left. But Numbers 27, uh, we're, we're seeing this kind of this future transition of power from Moses to Joshua. And there's mention of this guy named Eleazar. He's the priest. And this is part of this puzzle that's involved in Joshua not asking counsel from the Lord. So Numbers chapter 27, I'll start at verse 18. We read this. So the Lord said to Moses, Take Joshua, the son of Nun, a man in whom is the Spirit, and lay your hand on him. Make him stand before Eleazar the priest and all the congregation, and you shall commission him in their sight. You shall invest him with some of your authority, that all the congregation of the people of Israel may obey. So there's this transition of power from Moses to Joshua. Verse 21, And he shall stand before Eleazar the priest, who shall inquire for him by the judgment of the Urim before the Lord. At his word they shall go out, and at his word they shall come in, both he and all the people of Israel with him, the whole congregation. So Joshua was supposed to go to Eleazar, the, the, the priest, to inquire of him about judgment issues, discernment issues. He was supposed to ask uh, Eleazar, and who, and who would then ask the Lord, and that is how important decisions were supposed to be made. So there's a decision to be made. For example, these people are coming to make a covenant of peace with us. Should we do it? It all seems to check out. But first, let me go talk to Eleazar because we need to seek, seek the Lord. So he didn't do that. He, he thought he had seen enough. And so he made a decision. And I think we do the same. Uh, we're all confronted with different decisions, some small, sometimes they're really big, uh, and we do our homework. Most of us consider the pros and the cons. We consider how they're difficult decisions to be made. We do some research. Uh, we might even think that we've prayed about it, but really all we've done is think about it. And it's pretty easy to confuse thinking about it with praying about it. And we never really ask the Lord for wisdom. Thinking about what the wise thing to do is, is not the same thing as asking God for wisdom. In, in, in James we read, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. It doesn't say if any of you lacks wisdom, then try thinking about it a bit more. Keep turning it around in your mind. It says, let him ask God. Several years ago, uh, back when we lived in, in Tallahassee, worked with campus ministry at Florida State, um, the, the way it would work, we would have summer assignments. We would do campus ministry in the fall and spring. And then in the summer, you would usually have, an over, uh, you'd have a, a summer assignment. You were maybe staying stateside and working on a project or going overseas. It was always different. It was pretty much different every year for, for everybody. And so anyway, uh, one year, Missy and I got our assignment at the winter conference, as, as was the, the custom. Uh, and we thought we might get this assignment. Uh, and we felt like it was going to be a bad fit. And so we got the assignment and made an appointment to, to speak with some of our uh, leadership. So anyway, we, we, we met with the, with the leaders and we felt like we had a, you know, some good reasons. Like I said, we thought through this. It wasn't just you know, a random thing. Uh, but we, we gave our reasons and why we thought uh, what they were proposing wasn't a, a good fit and why an, another option might be a better fit. And so anyway, met with them, gave them our reasons, and they gave us a new assignment. So, so we were pleased with that, with that process. But then they did something a touch annoying to me. They said, hey, y- your reasons make sense. This seems right and good. Uh, why don't you just take a week and pray about it? 
This is what's a bummer about working for Christian organizations. You can't just make decisions, right? Like it all makes sense. We just laid it out. Y'all agreed. We agree. Let's do the thing. <laughs> but we got to take a week and pray about it. So, okay, I'll go pray about it, whatever. So anyway, uh, I did pray about it as, as they asked us to do. And I think it was a Friday we met with them and a Friday we were supposed to give them our decision. Uh, and the Thursday before, Missy and I were, were taking a walk and we both felt very confident uh, that we should uh, keep the original assignment that, that they gave us. And so we ended up doing that. And, and I should say this, there was no new information. There, there wasn't a, a change in, in a situation that happened. There wasn't uh, any kind of new element that changed the, the decision process. Uh, it was just that the Lord changed our heart. And we said, this is where I think the Lord would have us to go. Proverbs 21 verse 1 says this, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord, and he turns it wherever he will. God can change a king's heart, and it's not even a big deal. Imagine, imagine water in your hand. How, how hard is it for you to turn that water one way or the other? Not hard. And, and that's what our hearts are like in God's hands. And we need to remember that even if our minds are made up, we've looked at the pros and cons, there's more pros on this side than, than cons, then he can still change our hearts and he can turn it wherever he will. So we should pray. We should ask God for wisdom. And even after we figure out there's more pros on the left side than the right side or, or whatever it is, even when our mind's made up, we should still ask the Lord to change our heart, to, to move it wherever he will. Also, we should seek counsel from others. Proverbs 12, 15 says this, The way of the fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice. A mark of a fool uh, is someone who does not think he needs to hear from anyone else. Joshua, in this moment, one of the reasons he did this poorly is he did not ask counsel from Eleazar. Proverbs 15, 22 says, Without counsel, plans fail, but with many advisors, they succeed. So we don't have Eleazar, the priest, with us like Joshua had, but we do have, what we see in Peter, is that we have the priesthood of all believers. We have other Christians, and I believe God will give other Christians special insight into decisions that you and I need to make. So as your life confronts you with decisions to be made, should you go this way or that way, don't be so arrogant as to assume that your own mind holds the answer. You should ask God for wisdom. You should ask him to direct your heart and seek counsel from other believers. Or to put it another way, as we read in Proverbs 3, trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding and all your ways acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. And if we don't want to do that, if you're not willing to go that, if, if once we've thought about it, there's more pros than cons, we make our decisions, and we don't want to seek the Lord in that way, then we might need to be careful and a little bit suspicious of ourselves that perhaps we've already decided what we want the answer to be. And that is what the answer will be. And if that's the case, we need to repent. Are we willing to do what the Lord would have us to do even if on paper it seems like a bad decision, and even if it doesn't appeal to our mind or our feelings. And if that is the case, we need to remember to trust God. He works in really difficult circumstances to bring about much good. Jesus asked the Father that he might not drink the cup that was assigned to him. It was not his desire. But then he said, 
It's not my will, but your will be done. And so God might be calling us to walk through some really difficult circumstances, and we might not want to do it. We might not think it's our best option, but that th- does not mean that it's not what God has for us. And so in closing, uh, I want to say this. The, the two applications I have for our passage are, are these. One, we need to keep our word. If we make a promise, we need to keep that promise. And Joshua did this well. And two, we need to seek the Lord for wisdom. Joshua did this poorly. In fact, he just skipped it. But both of those things, both of those applications need to be rooted in the absolute trustworthiness of our God. He keeps his promises. God sees promises differently than we do. They are much more profound to him. So if God says he will do something, he will do it. You can 100% count on it. And here's something just to, to ponder. In John 14, Jesus says this, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? Jesus told us, I'm going somewhere. And there's a place that I'm preparing for you. He does not lie. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. Jesus has left to prepare a place for his, uh, for his people in his father's house. If it weren't so, he wouldn't have said it. He will come again, take us to himself, so that where he is, we will be there with him. He loves us. He wants us to be where he is. And if you believe the gospel, that that Jesus paid the penalty for your sins on the cross, and you've turned from your sins to follow Jesus, then you need to know that his desire and what he has said, and he cannot lie, is that he has gone to prepare a place for you, and he wants you to be with him, that where he is, you would be there too. He has promised us that he is preparing a place for us. And that is really good news. So may that good hope of what Jesus has promised us make us the kind of people who have a profound trust in our God because he is serious about keeping his promises. Let's pray. Father in heaven, how good it is to know uh, that when uh, you speak, we can believe it, we can count on it, we can trust it. Uh, Would you help us to be more like that? Uh, would you help us to um, be very cautious and, uh, and seek you and wisdom whenever we make a promise or a covenant or commitment? And may you help us to be faithful to keep those things even when it hurts. And so we thank you again for your word that we can trust and the good news that you've given us. In Jesus, in your name that we pray. Amen.